Welcome back, creeps. Hello. <laughs> Welcome back for another fantastic week of Stuff. fun festivities. Yeah, come on in. Have a seat. <laughs> <laughs> You're Have happy seat. with no... So, why don't you give us a quick recap on last week where we left off? All right, so... I will, in a way. The last week, we left off where... Um, Carmen and Granz moved into their new apartment on Nuyastraisib, eight Nuyastraisib, next to the Lane the Lane River. Um, at this point, he just got out of prison for assault, sexually assaulting a thirteen year old boy, and that's where we are. He's already started clearly well, at sixteen years old. He was already starting to molest children likely that he was going he he crossed the line of of killing them as well um and i'm gonna pick this up at year 1923 just know at this point because he was a informer for the police the police did give him a badge so he actually had like a full-on yeah i'm an investigator I can arrest you. Yeah. He, well, he had all the tools that he need. He had all the tools that he needed to pretend to be a police officer. This badge, uh, the confidence, because he was obviously a psychopath. Yeah. He knew everyone. He knew the ins and outs of arresting someone. He'd done it often to the point where he was comfortable doing it, knowing right. what to do, what to say, and all of that stuff. And because he had that inside of like who is who at Hanover Station is doing what crooked shit mm. like he had dirt on everyone Motherfucker. so yeah okay cool let's get stuck into it yeah do we and have just, any announcements to make i don't um, think so just our patreon just our patreon yeah pretty much uh, that we've been uh we've got like three two videos out there right now when this comes out we'll have three and Oh, I guess we could just uh, say thank you to Sapphire, although I doubt she listens. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah, we, we got our uh, our super cool poster from Sapphire Sandalo. Yeah, she's a really cool chick and yeah, just super hip hopping YouTuber. Yeah. Like we're going to be one day. My niece is actually a big uh, fan of hers, so she was pretty excited when we told her that, hey, uh, Sapphire Sandalo is talking to us. Yeah, mm-hmm. I just keep telling everyone, oh, you know, they're just our friends. It's whatever. <laughs> <laughs> no big deal. But yeah, so let's get stuck in then. All right. So Harmon's targets were young male travelers, runaways, prostitutes, basically anyone could, that could go missing easily. And later on, we'll see that he actually, even though right now we think, man, this guy has like, you know, some confidence on him. He actually escalates i guess not escalate well he does escalate but he also um his level of confidence skyrockets even more if that were possible already weren't possible already because he starts approaching people and not caring who is around whether they're accompanied by someone in a group or you know He's already picking up people at the station, but like, like say, for example, he sees a guy that he likes 
that he's attracted to, if that person is in a group with other friends, he will approach that one person. He's looking at some guy and he's like, I'm taking him. I'm going to take him back to whatever apartment or like holding space thing that I have storage space. And yeah. I'm going to bite his throat at until this, he dies. I should mention at this point, he's already, he doesn't use any other place, but the places that he's residing in now. So just his living spaces? Yes. Okay. Uh, I think he's moved apartments a total of three times. Um, but like I said, like with the more practice, the more confidence he gets, um, the more reckless he is, but with good reason because he knows no one's looking for him. Right. He's doing this. He's killing kids and young teenagers days in between each other. So this is as um, regular as you know, going to the gym or yeah, going yeah, to the yeah. bank or, you know right what on. I mean, going to work. Okay. Harmon's next known victim was Fritz Frank, or Frank, who he met in Hanover Central Station. Fritz Frank was 17 years old. He was a pianist who met Harmon at the station. The And Harmon claimed to be a police officer, again, at Hanover Station. He said he was patrolling the station and he was going to arrest him. Harmon took Frank to his Neustreise residence. When they arrived, Hans Granz was already there. You know, his boyfriend. Yeah, yeah. He was already there chilling with uh, two of his own female friends. And one of them was actually Granz's lover. So, and with this information, we know that He's not entirely, they're not entirely monogamous. They're allowed to have lovers yeah, okay. outside of just them two. And I think it, it could be, okay, so this, I found two different variations of how he got a hold of Fritz Frank. He, one of them says that he was going to be a, he, like he posed as a police and said that he was going to arrest him. And another one said that he just kind of, you know, turned on the charm and took him off, took him to his apartment. It could be both where he's like, you know, arresting him saying, hey, I'm going to take you to the police. And at the end, he's like, pretends to be a good guy. Be like, you know what? I'm going to let you off. Hey, let's go hang out in my apartment. Right. You know, blah, blah, blah. So according to Granz's lover, who was there at that time, she said that Granz whispered in her ear, quote, hey, he's going to be trampled on today. Which could mean something like he's going to get done in sexually or done in criminally. The insinuation is unclear. So he's talking about the guy that Harmon just brought back. Right. Okay. Yeah. And, you know, it could be one of those uh, language translation things. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like. But either way, it doesn't sound good. It doesn't no. sound fun for anybody. Well, no, because like when, like when you say, I, I kind of think about it like the word fuck right yeah it's like oh man like he's fucked you know or he's could say oh he's gonna get fucked completely two different things like yeah, yeah, yeah. he's fucked can insinuate can insinuate that something bad's gonna happen to him or something's bad bad has already happened to him mm-hmm. or like he's gonna get fucked which obviously means yeah, intercourse yeah, yeah. you know what i mean so that's what i mean like this is what the lover said 
later on in a testimony in court. But this is what Gron said. So it could be like this is one of the things that they debated in the trial was how complicit was Gron's in these murders. Right. Okay. So at some point, Gron's and the ladies left the apartment and Gron's arrived later to find Frank naked lying on Harmon's bed. Gron's asked Harmon if he should come back later. And I guess Harmon said, yeah. And so Gron's left. It's not clear if Gron's knew Frank was dead or if he thought Harmon and Frank were just having some alone time. Right, okay. So again, this goes into the trial, like yeah, how, how complicit, complicit were he? you? Yeah. What is clear is that when the ladies came back the next day to Harmon's apartment, Harmon told the women that Frank had just left to travel to Hamburg. Okay. So he just, he wasn't there anymore. He was there the night before and then the next morning wasn't there anymore. He's gone, he's gone to Hamburg. Well, he was like a traveling pianist. So that sounds yeah plausible. On March 20th, Harmon met 17-year-old Willem Schultz at Hanover Station. Schultz was traveling for work, but he was never seen again. This murder, because Harmon did murder Schultz, was linked to Harmon because Harmon's landlady, Elizabeth Ongol, had Schultz's clothes in her possession. When the police asked her, why do you have that clothing? Or maybe she came forward and said, I have this clothing. She told police that Harmon had given her that clothing. Right. Okay, I'm with you now. Okay. After the Schultz murder, 16-year-old Roland Huck also fell victim to Harmon on May 23rd. Huck was a runaway who intended to join the Marines. After that, 19-year-old Hans Sonnenfeld also disappeared. He disappeared on May 1st, wearing a distinctive yellow coat, which Harmon was spotted with after the youth's disappearance. Okay. Okay, so right now I'm just listing off all the people he's killing. Yeah, yeah. But either way, there's something linking him. Correct. Like quite. Um, and the reason, mm-hmm, the reason why it's the clothes will become important later. Okay. Because it plays a huge role. Like I'm, I'm talking clothes a lot, but it'll all make sense later. Okay. It's a very clever way that this all, sh- that all this shit went down. But yeah. It was a cl- I feel like it was a clever way both ways because remember he was a peddler of stolen goods including right, stolen right. clothing, property, whatever. Um anyways. In June of that same year, Harmon moved out of 8 Neustroisub and they moved in to a single room attic apartment of 2 Rotawaya. Perfect. <laughs> On June 25th, 13-year-old Ernst Ehrenberg disappeared. Ehrenberg was Harmon's neighbor's son who went out on this day to run an errand for his father. Wow, so he's really, like, he just doesn't give a fuck. Yes. He sees what he likes, you know, being that he's a pedophile Mm -hmm. and disgusting human being, and he just takes. The only traces of him were his school cap and suspenders 
that would be found in Harmon's apartment after he was arrested. On August 24th, 18-year-old office clerk Heinrich Struis went missing. And again, this was linked to Harmon because the victim's clothes were found in Harmon's apartment. A month after the, the Struis murder, Harmon took the life of 17-year-old Paul Broniskowski. Broniskowski? Yeah. He was on his way to the city of Bakum from having worked with his uncle all summer in Saxony-Anhalt. So I guess he lived in Bakum. He was finally going home. Bronikowski had to switch trains at Hanover Central Station, where he would have met Harmon. Bronikowski's jacket, luggage, pants, and handkerchief were found in Harmon's possession when he was later arrested. September 30, 1923, 17-year-old Richard Greif contacted his family for the last time telling them that he met someone in Hanover Station that, quote, knew of a good job for me, end quote, before disappearing. Which is really sad. Yeah, that's awful. On October 12th, two weeks later, 16-year-old Willem Erdner never came home from work. The only clue Erdner's family had to go on is that Erdner made a new friend named Detective Fritz Honorbrock which is Harmon's pseudonym that he used. So he met his new friend, Detective Fritz, right before he disappeared. Erdner went to and from work on his bicycle, which Harmon and Granz sold on October 20th. A few days after selling the bike on October 23rd, Harmon killed 15-year-old Herman Wolf. On October 27th, three days later, 13-year-old Heinz Brinkman disappeared after missing his train to Klausthal. Both children were last seen at Hanover Central Station. Jesus Christ, he's literally on a fucking rampage. Yeah. So like like how I said, like the the these are only the murders that are known of, and I feel like they're only known because of the clothing bit and because like they've seen these boys with him. Right. Okay. So even in between these murders he might have been Correct. Like because do you remember what you had for breakfast two months ago? I don't even remember what I had for breakfast yesterday. So if you find out that this guy who you see, you know, like only at Hanover Station and you only go to Hanover Station a handful of times in the week, mm-hmm. you know, you might not remember seeing him with someone that you later find out is missing. Yeah, yeah, of course. On November 10th, 1923, 17-year-old apprentice carpenter from Dusseldorf, Dusseldorf, Dusseldorf yeah. <laughs> yeah, named Adolf Hannibal, disappeared from Hanover Station. He was last seen in the company of Hans Granz and Harmon, going in the direction of a cafe, I guess, around Hanover Station, before completely disappearing. So that's Hans Granz being positively identified. Yes. With a victim before all this shit. Mm-hmm. Okay. A month later, on December 6th, 19-year-old Adolf Henny was looking for employment when he came upon Harmon. The prosecutor for Harmon could not pin this murder on him due to conflicting statements from him, him and Hans Granz. Harmon himself admitted to dismembering him but not killing him, 
he insinuated that it was Granz that killed Hennies, while Granz insisted that Harmon had killed him, saying, quote, he was one of yours. No one was convicted of this murder. Wow. He like, was one of yours. Yeah. That's crazy. That's insane to me. Yeah, no, it's fucking nuts. It's really reminded me a lot of, uh, I know I always reference Dean Coral, but I guess it's just one of those cases that stood out to me. But he does, this story is reminding me of that because um, just like the relationship between him and Hans Grand, whereas Dean Coral had um, that kid who was arrested. Yeah. I can't pl- think of his name right now. Although he would get kid, people for him. Yeah, yeah. And he proclaims his innocence still. I remember, yeah, I remember that story. You're absolutely right. There is a parallel, especially with the whole homophobia thing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and like, as long as you don't make a lot of noise, you won't attract attention to yourself, Mm -hmm. you know? And that was all in the span of one year. Just wanted to let you guys know. (laughs) Fucking hell. I know, fucking wild. Let's go to 1924. Come with me. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> the first victim Harmon killed in 1924 allegedly was 17 year old Ernst Spiker who disappeared on January 5th Harmon couldn't admit to killing Spiker because he didn't remember him he took the prosecutor's word for it though because police found Spiker's belongings amongst his own possessions upon his arrest also a friend of Spiker's testified that Harmon made friends with him right before he disappeared Harmon was just like, okay, if you say so, I guess I killed him too. Yeah, I mean, how many fucking... Yeah. Yeah, like you said, like, what do you... Do you remember what you had for breakfast two months ago? Yeah. Ten days after this murder, the Spikers murder, um, 20-year-old Heinrich Koch disappeared right after making friends with Harmon. In the following month, Harmon killed 19-year-old William Sanger, who was traveling from Linden Limer on February 2nd. In the same month, he also killed 16-year-old Herman Spikert, who disappeared on February 8th. And there seems to be an there appears to be a hiatus of murdering kids, like between the February 8th and the next one. But um I just don't see him stopping. Because of his unchecked pattern of murder, is only days apart. If there is, if there was a hiatus where he just did not kill anybody, I feel like it was there was something probably going on in his life that we don't know about. He didn't talk about. Maybe he traveled somewhere else, and you know that's where a bunch of killings happened. Or maybe he struck up like an actual romantic relationship. I know that happens a lot. Or something happened that physically stopped him from killing. Maybe he got like really sick or some shit. Yeah, yeah, shit. Mm -hmm. But otherwise, I just don't think there was a break between this murder and the next murder that happened on April 1st. So on April 1st, Harmon murdered an acquaintance of his named Herman Bach. He persuaded Bach's friends not to report him missing. But when he was arrested, this murder was pinned on Harmon because... Harmon had gifted Brock's suitcase to his landlady. <laughs> That's so okay. And he still had some of Brock's possession, uh, clothes in his possession. 
So these are like his fucking trophies or whatever. Well, I mean, he gets... It, it's crazy. Like, this is pure product killings, right? Yeah. He gets to have... He gets to rape these kids. He gets to murder them. Um, and he can do it as much as he wants, like, to get his kicks off, right? Yeah. And he can collect all their possessions and get to sell them and make money. So this is all profit in so many ways. Yeah, this is... I wonder, did he view it just like that as a business transaction, basically? Like, this is him going to the market to get his wholesale fucking goods. I want to say yes, because if you remember, um, growing up, his dad taught him how to be a con artist. And as he grew up, whenever he wasn't in the military, he was always looking for easy ways to make money. Yeah, yeah. But what's crazy to me is I feel like this is the point where he's like, I don't care who sees or whatever, mm -hmm. because this is the first time that I see him saying, um, going to his victim's friends, trying to persuade them not to report this kid missing. Okay, yeah, yeah. And that's what stuck out to me. A week later after this murder, on April 8th, Alfred Hogreff ran away and disappeared after arriving at Hanover Station. Just nine days later, 16-year-old Willem April disappeared the same way. On April 26th, 18-year-old Robert Witzel disappeared after heading out to see a traveling circus. This is really sad. Witnesses saw this boy walking from Hanover Station with an official who worked at the station. Harmon would later admit to this murder in trial, saying that he killed, dismembered, and discarded the boy's body that same evening in the Leon River. So this kid wasn't even traveling. He just... He was just going to see the circus. Exactly. And, like, it's so sad because the mom was like, I remember him asking me for money. So he can go see the circus. Wow. And he left and he never came back. This is upsetting. It is. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> but no, this... but that, it is mad though. And it's like such a thing, like a tale of the times as well. Like really, yeah. isn't it? like, oh, 1924. Can I have, can I please have half a penny so I can go and see the circus, ma? Uh, yeah. <laughs> no, nah, it is sad though. And it, this is how he was, he was dismembering all the bodies and throwing them all in the yes. river. There were some well-fed fish. So he was throwing some in the river and he was also discarding them in other places, but m mostly he was throwing them in the river. Okay. In the same river. Yeah. Two weeks later, Harmon killed 14-year-old Heinz Martin, who went missing on May 9th. His mother reported him missing and he was last seen at Hanover Station and his clothes were also in Harmon's possession. On May 26th, 17-year-old Fritz Wittig, who was, who was a traveling salesman, went missing. Harmon later said in his trial that he killed this person because Granz insisted that he had to have the suit Wittig was wearing because it was a brand new spanking suit. That is grim. Mm-hmm. These guys, they literally sound like a, a pair of supervillains or something. You know what I mean? They were, they were psychos. Yeah. They were fucking psychos. But like that, that seems like a scene from an old movie. It's like, oh, that guy's wearing a nice suit. Yeah. I it would look better suit. on me. Yeah. <laughs> Wittig was murdered and discarded in the same way the others were. That same day. That same day. Harmon killed 10-year-old Frederick Abling, 
who was playing hooky from school that day. Do you know what that means, playing hooky? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, okay, I wasn't sure. <laughs> when I was writing this, I was like, we might have a conversation about the word hooky. <laughs> you know what they called it in my school? No way. And this is the only time I've ever heard this expression, mitching. Hmm. Yeah, I think that was like if you got caught mitching, like that you got detention or whatever. Mm-hmm. But what an odd fucking word to use like i I, agree we we would say like ditching or yeah well it's weird because like now that you mentioned like the whole mitching thing and then slipping a mickey like what's up with these names like you're picking names oh yeah i don't know maybe mitch just started it but like in my head like you ditch school or you like bunk off is another you know what i mean like where the fuck did mitching come from though like literally only in my school on the detention list yeah have i ever heard that word i don't know anyway two weeks later 16 year old frederick cock would be approached by Harmon as he walked to college with two of his college buddies these kids later testified that Harmon approached cock and asked well boy don't you recognize me this is what i mean by bold he was with a group of friends Wow. Saint picked him out, singled him out, and was able to separate him from his herd of friends. Fucking hell. And who was he pretending to be? An official. Just what? a policeman. Why would you say, like, well, boy, don't you recognize me? I think it's just a ruse. That's, you know? Okay, okay. Yeah. And I feel like that. I think that's also... Like a ruse that men use to lure women away nowadays. It's a ruse. And then when they start the conversation, I think that's when the person who is the predator is gathering information for his vic- like on his victim through this conversation right. to sort of Piece form a bond. Of, yeah, like a bond. Like, okay, now we have this thing. Right. You know what I'm saying? Because I think that's... That's, I think I heard a story the other day on YouTube where that's how, that's sort of like a tactic that they use when they're trying to uh, kidnap women for sexual trafficking. Mm. That's awful. It is. But it's a thing. And it was very much a thing. A um, hundred years ago. <laughs> yeah. Literally a hundred fucking years ago. But it's good that you don't know that tactic because it tells me that you're still a safe <laughs> person to be with. Yes, yes. This is all a part of my plan. <laughs> I mean, I just noted, like I just made a note, like I think it's evident that this guy is a sociopath or a psychopath, whichever one, both bad. Mm-hmm. But this shit right here is just so fucking bold. He didn't care who he saw because he feels like no one's going to stop him. Like look how many he's killed so far yeah like i mean i can understand why he would feel that way yeah like i feel like this is sort of like a get out of not a get out of jail free card but in a he sense has immunity. yeah well this is what <laughs> it's gonna sound weird but this is what i think it's like say you can eat you know how they tell you don't eat junk food when you get older because you'll get diabetes high blood pressure you'll gain weight blah 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 yeah He's essentially immune to all of these bad repercussions. He can eat as much ice cream as he wants. He can eat as much pizza as he wants. And he's not going to get fat. And he's never going to get fat. Never going to get diabetes. Except it's boy rape and boy murder. Exactly. Okay. 
That's the way. He literally has a buffet of boys. Yeah, Jesus Christ. Actually, is he eating them? Or is he just biting chunks out of them? We'll get to that later. Because <laughs> it's scandalous. <laughs> Check this shit out. I just, I can't eat. I, when I fucking read this, I was like, I cannot fucking believe. You know, I think this detail alone makes it from psychopath to fucking sociopath, I think. Okay. So he knows he's getting, he knows this like official thing is getting him passes left and right like you know posing as an official yeah having the badge all this shit you know it was, everything is working so well he would use this to answer ads that called for information on these disappearances he would pose as a criminologist and go to the homes of the grieving families and laugh at them while he was asking them questions then he'd ask them for payment for his services and all the while he'd be pretending like, oh, no, no, I'll find young Joseph or yeah. whatever. Fucking hell, When he that's was scary. the one that killed young Joseph. But he would laugh at this. Like, he would, like, not be, he would be bold about it. He wouldn't, like, he, he, behind my hand, like, he would laugh openly at these people just grieving. Jesus Christ. What, that is the ultimate fucking power move right there, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It is. And it's just like, it's beyond me. I can't comprehend that this idea even struck him. Like, how how about I do this? Because, hey, this is another way I can make money. Oh, yeah. I didn't even think of the money part there. I was just thinking. And I can relive. The pleasure. Like Exactly. Harmon's last victim was 17-year-old Eric DeVries, who disappeared on June 14, 1924. When he arrived to Hanover Station, Harmon discarded his dismembered body using several trips to get it done and Frederick Cox's luggage bag to do it, which, remember, that's one of his victims. Yeah. This body he discarded in a lake in Herrenhausen Gardens, which is, a remember, I told you he didn't just dump in the lake. Yeah, yeah. A month before Harmon killed his last victim, Two kids discovered a skull that looked like it belonged to an 18 to 20 year old human. You know, yeah. later medical examiners would confirm this, but they found it near the Leon River. Two weeks after that, a second skull was found close to the area that the first skull was found at. And soon after that, two kids discovered a bag of bones in a field close to the village of Dorian. A bag of bones. Okay. On June 13th, two more skulls were found on the Leon River and another in West Hanover. One looked like it belonged to someone age 11 to 13. And the other looked to belong to someone who was in their late teens. All of the skulls that were found had the same trauma wounds that indicated the removal of the skull from the vertebrae using a sharp object. And it also had signs on the scalp, uh, signs on the skull that the victims were scalped fuck right (laughs) this is heavy for me like yeah this is insane i can't believe it this is what lpn would call a heavy hitter oh big time yeah but before all these bones started popping up hanover was already living in fear because of all of the missing children and youngsters from their city 
because, you know, he like at the beginning it was travelers and runaways and shit, but he just couldn't help himself and kept getting closer and closer to home. Yeah. Like he, he made that more of a practice mm. to do it um, and at the home. Once the bones started popping up, like the rumors and the fear just got worse. So what happened was that the residents of Hanover took to the banks of the Leon River to search for remains and whatever else they could find. And anything that they did find, they handed over to the police. In total, they found 500 bones and whole sections of bodies ranging from freshly killed to old in decay. The residents took it upon themselves because they just didn't have any faith in the police, basically. They were like, I think they might have been like, okay, look. We got to do something about this. We have to be proactive in this. Fair play to them. Yeah, because if they didn't have faith in the police, they wouldn't have turned over this shit. They would have gone all um, vigilante. Yeah, yeah. But they didn't. They handed over to the police, which is a very important detail, meaning that they'd still had faith in the police. Okay. They probably thought maybe if we do it... We'll just help them out. We'll help them out, exactly. Almost half of the remains that they did find belonged to males aged 15 to 20. Harmon was the number one suspect for police because they knew of his 15 convictions from 1896, all offenses related to violence against minors and children. He was also connected to the Roth and Cock disappearance of 1918. His surveillance began on June 18, 1924. And I mean Harmon's surveillance. Yeah. Like yeah. the police started surveilling Harmon. Um, so because Harmon knew all of the officers in the force, because, you know, informant, yeah. the police decided to use two policemen from Berlin. So they brought them in from Berlin because they were like, he doesn't know who the fuck they are yeah. for this uh, undercover operation. These police watched Harmon's movements, hoping that he would buy their facades of traveler in need while watching him at Hanover Station. On June 22nd, Harmon was seen arguing with 15-year-old Carl Fromm. Harmon walked over to some police officers and insisted that they arrest him because Fromm was traveling with forged documents. He's such a fucking rat. He's a rat, yeah, what the fuck? I fucking hate this guy. (laughs) (laughs) The police arrested Fromm, who confessed to them that he had lived with Harmon for four days and was repeatedly raped by knife point by Harmon. Fuck. Harmon was arrested the next morning. While Harmon was locked up, Harmon's apartment was searched. The place was stained with blood. We're talking walls, flooring, and bedding. I actually was wondering this earlier on, but okay. Yeah, like it's, it's all red. Like he made no attempt no. Really to even cover it up. For. I mean, for what, right? Yeah, because he was untouchable. Mm-hmm. Harmon tried to explain this away by saying it was a result of handling contraband meat. But like, why would you bring the meat to bed with you? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like his bed was soaked with blood. Hello. And, and like to me, I'm like, where the fuck did this guy sleep? Like, did he sleep on that shit? Probably. Dirty bastard. Dirty bastard, indeed. (laughs) Police interviewed his neighbors from the current addresses. I'm sorry. 
Police interviewed his neighbors from the current address and the previous ones. They noticed a pattern, like the constant mention of slew of like seeing a slew of young boys going to his place, never leaving, but just mm-hmm. going to his place. Him leaving his apartments in the middle of the night or in the early mornings with bags bas- and like baskets that looked filled with stuff. Two neighbors, previous neighbors of his, were so curious about his bags that they followed him to see where he went with those bags. And their journey ended at the Leon River where they saw him dump the bags in the river. Fuck. Okay. Well, like... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Back then, you could litter as much as you want, I guess. Oh, yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> the police suspected that the clothes Harmon had in his apartment might belong to the missing kids. They didn't know that yet, remember? Mm-hmm. This was like a hunch. You think they were like, this guy has such a strange taste in fashion and so <laughs> many different sizes. Yeah. So what they did was they took all of the clothes and put it on display at Hanover Police Station and invited the families of the missing children to go see and possibly identify the clothing as belonging to their missing loved ones. That's very sad. Yeah, it is. But I mean... How else would they, are they going to do this anyway? It was resourceful because oh, yeah, yeah. of all of the clothes. Like, yeah. how much time would it have taken to visit every single missing oh, family? Oh, no, no, no. I, I, yeah. Like, to me, I'm just like, Yeah. Oh like, yeah, it so was the, smart. The best plan. Definitely. Exactly. But it's so beyond me to think this is so sad, like the situation that they had to this is what they're up against. Yeah. So therefore yeah. this is what they had to do. Like so fucking crazy. Several families confirmed that some of the articles belonged to their sons, brothers, grandsons, nephews. Wow. Harmon again had an explanation for this. Because he had an explanation for everything. He was in the business of selling and trading used clothes. Of course. So they must have come into his possession that way. Nine, nine, nine. You see, you are mistaken. Look <laughs> at these. Yeah. I am, these are purely for selling. <laughs> and he explained away the others, saying that he had them because his lovers, his like frequent lovers, I guess, mm-hmm. would leave them at his house after sex i mean i couldn't tell you the amount of times that i've just discarded clothing after. <laughs> like what should have fed him <laughs> <laughs> the nail in the coffin Harmon's coffin rather was when they found robert witzel's clothes boots and keys in Harmon's apartment and his yellow jacket with his landlady. Of course. Because remember, Whistle had that really unique yellow jacket. Yeah, yeah. And that particular jacket had very unique characteristics on it, like um, identifying marks. Right. That the family described, and witnesses saw him trying to remove these. Like, they saw Harmon trying to change the jacket to make it... Yeah, like maybe there was initials in it or something. Yeah. Yeah. Also, Witzel's skull was among the ones that were found in the Leon River. Fuck. So this was like, all right, we got him. We got yeah, our this guy. this is the one. Mm-hmm. With this new evidence and with the urging of his sister, Harmon confessed to raping, killing, dismembering young men 
in the throes of, quote, rabid sexual passion hmm. between 1918 and 1924. He said he felt compelled to bite his partners in the throat and choke them while they were having sex. Harmon said he didn't like the dismemberment part of getting rid of the bodies, but it was necessary because of his needs to get off on raping and killing young boys. He said the whole process of dismemberment took two days. I'm going to describe the process. So if you can't, if your stomach is... Yeah, a, trigger warning. You just fast forward. Okay. If you had lunch, maybe listen to this later. So, the process. Place the body of his victim upon the floor of his apartment. Cover the face with a cloth before first removing the intestines, which it would place inside a bucket. A towel would then be repeatedly placed inside the abdominal cavity to soak the collecting blood. He would then make three cuts between the victim's ribs and shoulders. Then take hold of the ribs and push until the bones around the shoulders broke. The victim's heart, lungs, and kidneys would then be removed, diced, and placed in the same bucket which held the intestines before the legs and arms would be severed from the body. Harmon would then begin paring the flesh from the limbs and torso. This surplus flesh would be disposed of in the toilet or usually in the nearby river. The final section of the victim's body to be dismembered was invariably the head. After severing the head from the torso, Harmon would use a small kitchen knife to strip all the flesh from the skull, which he would then wrap in rags and place face downwards upon a pile of straw and bludgeon with an axe until the skull was splintered, enabling him to access the brain. This he would also place in a bucket, which he would pour alongside the chopped up bones in the lien. So that was quite literally the gory details. Yeah. But you know what I always find interesting, always, particularly here, is like, he's obviously so clearly like desensitized and doesn't have any empathy for his victims at all. Mm -hmm. And yet he still feels the need to cover their face with a cloth before he does this to their body. Um, I think it might have to do with, well, I mean, I mean, you may be right. You may be right. Like, I don't know as a like regular person. I like, I don't have any fucking psychology yeah. experience or something, but that's weird. Right. You, you know what, like that, that one of, detail, like, I think you're right. That's strange. Yeah. Oh, no, please don't look at me while I do this. You know what I mean? Yeah, maybe. After what? And maybe it's like that post-sexual clarification thing. Kind of like when you wake up hungover? Yeah, it's like at the time when he's like, say, to blame it on that like rabid sexual passion or whatever. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then, like for want of a better word, but that post-nut clarity. Yeah. Where he's like, oh shit, look what I did. Mm. Now I have to do this. You know what I mean? And Yeah, could be. Could it's just be. fucking weird though, right? Creep. Yeah. Sick fucking fuck. I think you may be right because I have a feeling that if he didn't have a problem with looking at their faces while they were dead, he would probably, I mean, he's probably so sick as to get aroused by just looking at them again. Yeah. 
and probably become a necrophiliac. I don't know. We're just, we're just, we don't know. Yeah, we don't know. We're just speculating, uh, you know. Uh, this is such a fun show. <laughs> <laughs> Harmon denied responsibility for the skulls found in the Lien River in the beginning, but this was soon seen as a way to try to save his own ass. He insisted that he crushed the skulls of all of his victims, except for the ones he killed before 1918, and Eric DeVries. He also claimed that his desire to murder was impulsive and exclusive to when he had sex, but police found evidence that suggested that he planned his murders days in advance. He also had a hand in almost every disappearance, whether it was dissuading someone from reporting a boy missing or coming up with an explanation as to why some of them went missing. Mm. Harmon only fessed up to murders that the police could without a doubt pin to Harmon. In the end, they could only stick 27 boys to him. As for all the others, all Harmon would say was, quote, there are some victims you don't know about, but it's not those you think. So the police indulged him and asked, how many were there then? And he said, somewhere between 50 and 70. Wow. Hans Granz was also arrested and charged after Harmon told police that he was responsible for some of the murders. After Harmon was examined psychologically, he and Granz went to trial on December 4th, 1924. The public was allowed into the courtroom after the gruesome tales of all the murders were already discussed. The papers had a field day with this case, calling it the most revolting case in German criminal history. A little early for them. Yeah, to be. It was <laughs> <laughs> a little early Yikes. for them to call that. Okay. <laughs> I didn't age well. No. Anyways, <laughs> they also gave him his monikers in the papers. Uh, like I mentioned in the last episode. Do you remember his monikers? Oh, sorry. His nickname is like. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. In the trial, he still denied that any of the murders were planned and also admitted to 14 out of the 27 they had evidence for. He also denied selling or consuming the meat of his victims, because that was a rumor. Okay. A medical expert went to Harmon's apartment who testified that the meat in his apartment was not human. Exhibits presented at court were 285 skeletal structures from the Lian River, skulls, a bucket he used to transport human remains, his bloody bed, photos of victims that were submitted to the court for review, and through it all... Harmon was blasé and dismissive of it all. He denied recognizing any of the men in his photos and would say things like, I probably killed it. Charge it to me. It's all right with me. Okay. He was shown a photo of Alfred Hogriff, and all he could say was, I certainly assume I killed Hogriff, but I don't remember his face. Wow. What began the rumor of Harmon being a cannibal were witnesses in this trial who noticed Harmon always emerging from his place with packs of meat, but never going into the apartment with them. One of the landladies testified that her and her family became sick after eating sausages and skins he claimed to come from sheep. Oh, no. Another neighbor testified noticing the slew of youths entering his apartment, but never seeing them leave. 
but he would always see him leave with buckets of bones to dump into the Leon River. Because that's just a normal fucking thing. Oh, it's just hands with, or it's just fucking, just harm with his bucket of bones. Yeah. Later. So that's what made the rumor. But like I said, well, I mean, the medical examiner said it's not human meat. That particular meat that he had in his apartment at that time was not human meat. Yeah, but like nothing can be confirmed. Proven. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. In the trial, the two ladies, lady friends of Hans Granz testified how they had seen what looked like a human mouth in the soup kettle in Harmon's apartment. They took it out and showed it to the police who said, it's probably just a pig snout. Oh my God, okay. The court then turned their attention to the police force who denied knowing any of his crimes, uh, uh, denied knowing anything about his crimes, despite knowing that they had seen themselves, like they had themselves, they'd yeah. seen him with some of the missing boys before the disappearances. But they still like stood steadfast in their claims of not knowing what, what was, was happening. Going. Yeah, okay. So the trial lasted two weeks with 190 witnesses who testified. Both men had extremely different reactions to being found guilty of murder. Harmon was found guilty of 24 murders and sentenced to beheading. He said, quote, I accept the verdict fully and freely. I go to the decapitating block joyfully and happily. He never appealed against his verdict. Granz, on the other hand, was found guilty of inciting murder and being an accessory to the murder of Adolf Hanapple. His sentence was 12 years in prison to conclude with his own beheading. When Granz arrived at his cell after the sentencing, he collapsed. Granz did try to appeal his verdict, but he was denied. Those are some fucking gnarly sentences, though, aren't they? Mm. It's like, no, 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 you're going to suffer for, what, 10, 12 years? 12 years. And then we're going to cut your fucking head off. Okay, that's not, like, the worst of it, though. Like, I'll tell you, like, what, what I think is so fucking, like, savage about the whole beheading thing. Yeah. As per German tradition, Harmon was not notified of the date of his beheading. Oh. Until the night before. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So that's, that's when he would know. That's intense. Isn't it? It's so crazy. Yeah, shit. <laughs> Little Germans, man. <laughs> that's crazy. He prayed with a pastor in a cell and was granted a request to smoke an expensive cigar and a Brazilian coffee to drink. Harmon was beheaded on April 15, 1925. He, his demeanor was one of putting on a false, brave face because the people around him noticed that he was very pale and nervous. Mm. Until the end, he just kept talking a big game with fancy words. His last words were, I'm guilty, gentlemen, but hard though it may be, I want to die as a man. I repent, but I do not fear death. Hans was retried because Harmon insisted that he had nothing to do with the murders, and he only accused him because he was upset. Granz was retried, but found guilty of a lesser charge of aiding and abetting. He served his 12 years, but was released after that, and he lived in Hanover until 1965, when he finally died. 
Wow, that's a long life as well, right? Yeah. So check this shit out. After Harmon was beheaded, his head was donated to Gutengen Medical School until 2014 when it was cremated. It was kept in a jar of formaldehyde without its brains because before it made it to the school, forensic analysis had removed them. They examined the brains and only found traces of meningitis, but otherwise nothing abnormal. So that's how long it was in formaldehyde from 1925 to 2014. Wow. Yeah. The remains of Harmon's victims which had been recovered, were buried together in a communal grave in Stekna Cemetery in February 1925. In April 1928, a large granite memorial in the form of a triptych inscribed with the names of age, the names and ages of the victims, was erected over this communal grave. And that's my story. I have some pictures if you want to see. Yeah, absolutely I do. That's insane. And to be honest, like I'm, I mean, we're both very uh, morbid tourists. Like if we found out that, yeah, you can go and see this dude's head on display. We would have went to go see it. Yeah. Honestly, I'm a little bummed out that it's. Yeah. I'm like, why didn't I know about this like before? Yeah. I could have like found a way to go see this douchebag's head. Um, So this is him. This is Herman. Oh, even that stash was popular back then, I guess. And that's Hans Granz. He's a good-looking dude. I can tell why they had that tumultuous relationship where Harmon would repeatedly ask for him to come back because yeah. this is... He's a handsome man. He's a handsome dude. How did all that hair fit into that hat like that? <laughs> he, um, like, that's, he's literally got the same haircut that dudes now have. Like, you know what I mean? That's nuts. That's the triptych. That's the memorial to all the victims of Harmon. Cool, cool. Uh, that's Harmon right before he was beheaded. Standing strong, or at least pretending to. Like, he looks like he's just hanging out with his buddies. Yeah, yeah. And that's his head in formaldehyde. Wow. <laughs> that, I wasn't expecting it to look, like, not, like, that good, like, that clear. It literally looks like he, it's a guy just underwater in his pool. It's just like the heads from Futurama. Yeah. That's nuts. Yeah. Well, fucking hell. <laughs> That was intense. I cannot believe I never heard of him before. What a monster. Yeah. And for the next episode, I know this was long, but for the next episode, I'm going to go for something shorter. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Well, today I'm going to tell you a little bit of a local legend from Vermilion, Ohio. Have you ever heard of Vermilion, Ohio? No. Me neither. But I know vermilion's a color. Okay. It's green. So today we're going to talk about Gore Orphanage. Oh, God. Yeah, right. What a metal name. (laughs) It just sounds terrible. So first I'm going to tell you the legend. Okay. Sometime in the late 1800s in Vermilion, Ohio, stood Gore Orphanage. Mm Mm-hmm. One night, a fire broke out and quickly engulfed the entire building, trapping over a hundred children on the second floor. People came running to see what they could do, but it was all in vain as they were too slow and the fire was already in full swing. They were forced to stand and watch the fire take its toll, and even if they looked away, they could still hear the screams of all the children cooking inside, until eventually all that was left was a slow, crackling pile of burning embers. 
How many kids? Over a hundred. That's so sad. Even one kid would have been sad. The locals couldn't bring themselves to reconstruct a new orphanage after such a horrific tragedy. So to this day, there still stands the remains of the building's scorched stone pillars out on Gore Orphanage Road. There are a handful of conspiracies surrounding the events of that night, and they are as follows. Mm-hmm. It was a sincere accident. Some say one of the little boys accidentally knocked over a lamp. Mm-hmm. Others say it actually started in the barn, but quickly spread to the main building. Mm-hmm. There's another version of the story that says it was actually started by an unknown crazy man who lived in the surrounding woods and hated how much noise the kids would make. So he decided to take care of the situation himself. Mm-hmm. Okay. Another theory is a disgruntled male employee had a problem with Mr. Gore, the owner of the orphanage, whose life was dedicated to saving children and giving them the care and upbringing they all deserved. So this disgruntled employee thought that a perfect way to enact revenge was to kill what Mr. Gore loved the most, the children. Wow. And lastly, the other alternative ending to this legend Mm -hmm. was that old man Gore was actually a horrible bastard who absolutely abhorred children and just wanted to make a big insurance claim. Mm. So this story has been told for like the last 100 years like around campfires and like you know people's grannies grannies new kids that were in the fire and stuff mm-hmm. like that but the actual story goes back to 1817 a fella called joseph swift was given 150 acres of woodland in vermilion with the hopes of building a big fancy estate i will say they'll say was not given out to me, but just saying that I get, I tend to get hung up on like the small details of stories. Cause to me, that's what makes it interesting. Maybe it's your, well, for, for this particular one, maybe it's your background in construction. Uh, I don't know. I don't, but anyway, I did get a little bit hung up on things here, mm. but only because using findagrave.com. I found the graves of the people involved in this story. What the fuck? Yeah, so even in the truth of this story, I found a lot of non-truths. Okay, and I found actual historical things to say, no, this is what happened, or that's what happened. So anyway, this guy was either bought 150 acres of woodland or was given it for some government service that he performed. Mm Mm-hmm. I don't know what that entails, but probably killing innocent people and stealing their lands. This is 1817. Ah. Anyway, that guy's name was Joseph Swift. And pretty soon the locals started to call this area of land Swift's Hollow, which is fucking cool. (laughs) And I would love to buy like a big old bunch of land and have somebody like name it, like just start calling it like Old Man Lynch's or (laughs) Lynch's Hollow. Don't go down there to Lynch's Valley. You never know what's going to come back out. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. It would be fucking cool. Anyway, it took Swift the next 20 years just to clear the land. Mm. So whatever his like money was tied up in, I don't know. He made a lot of money in railroad Mm, at the time. And they started the construction of what would be Swift's mansion Mm -hmm. in 1840. It only took one year to complete this mansion, which to me is one of the most suspicious things of all this and like how poorly constructed was this Mm, building. Okay. Anyway, 
When it was complete, it was a 14-room home with huge 15-foot ceilings, servants' quarters, the works, and the mansion was nicknamed Swift's Folly. Hmm. So Joseph Swift lived there with his wife until 1874 when they actually had to sell everything after some bad investments in the railroad industry. In the railroad? In the railroad industry. (laughs) The fellow who bought the land and house off him was a guy called Nicholas Wilbur. Wilbur was described as a renowned spiritualist. In quotes, I put that. I couldn't find I couldn't find anything to really like back this up, but the story goes that him and his wife would hold séances in the house, and oh, they actually shit. had one of these uh, fourteen rooms was specifically designated to séances. Yeah. Okay. And the reason why they held these séances was to communicate with the families passed on children okay I, I, why can't i articulate this children of the family who had died previously okay right got it these ghosts you. the ghosts <laughs> yeah no. the ghosts of these dead children uh-huh. were said to appear regularly at these seances like no full-on apparitions in this dark ass room Jeez. they would just show up oh no so it's the general belief that the whole family were very, quote unquote, spiritual mm. and the kids were said to be psychic. No shit. Yeah. So like I said, I went full blown PJ O'Brien private detective on this story. I like it. Yeah. And for those of you who don't know, PJ O'Brien is my pseudonym for <laughs> when I do eventually become a private detective in my olden days with trench coat and a, and a what are those fedoras? Yeah. Yeah. And when you become other things, that's going to be your pseudonym. Yeah, yeah. When you take over the world, it'll be... When I take over the world. When I also start practicing my... uh... It'll be dictator PJ (laughs) O'Brien. Or if I ever uh, become a a cool traveling blues musician. Yeah. Anyway. (laughs) So I actually found, like I said, the death records of this family and all those children that were said to be psychic Mm -hmm. as far as i found there was only one child oh and it was a guy and i think he lived in this mansion with them Uh but the sad thing is they actually did lose four grandchildren so nicholas wilbur who bought the house uh his sons four kids all died in the span of six days. What the in fuck? In 1893, yeah. What happened? So I think it was a diphtheria outbreak. Okay. Yeah. Well, what is that again? I don't know. What is diphtheria? The old time you Diphtheria is an infection caused by the bacterium Gorillobacterium diphtheriae. Do you want me to keep reading? Okay. Signs and symptoms may vary from mild to severe. They usually start two to five days after exposure. Symptoms often come on fairly gradually, beginning with a sore throat and fever. In severe cases, a gray or white patch develops in the throat. This can block the airway and create a barking cough as in croup. The neck may swell in part due to enlarged lymph nodes. Wow, so that's just another thing that we all need to be fucking terrified of. It actually sounds a lot like the disease, the Captain Trips from the stand. Mm. So, they probably died of the fever. Yeah, well, like that diphtheria back then, I guess probably now, like we're 
the vaccine or a simple cure but back then obviously there wasn't and if it's a bacteria it's probably like highly infectious. contagious yeah, yeah highly con- it makes sense that well i mean then how come he didn't die i don't know that's interesting maybe like the way covid19 affects children less maybe diphtheria affects children more i don't fucking know mm. but either way it seemed pretty sad and four kids died i'm assuming they were a very close-knit family yeah. you know because let me see oh yeah there was some like controversy between people saying oh well they didn't die in the house so why would they haunt there mm. but in their like i guess their obituaries or whatever it is on that findagrave.com which by the way is really cool it they all died in vermilion on the lake which is in vermilion ohio mm-hmm. so even if they didn't live in the mansion they lived in the locale you know what i mean they were close physically yeah. anyway the first to die was may who was nine she died on january 13th jesse 11 january 14th roy 2 january 17th and ruby to january 19th mm. roy and ruby were twins well, that's so a cute name for twins yeah right like so whatever happened it was fucking horrific and in my opinion it's really not that unlikely that even if the family weren't like quote-unquote spiritual before that they would soon turn to seances and that for this kind of comfort my family have done that you know what i mean mm-hmm. like a lot of people still to this day do that mm-hmm Another argument said that Nicholas didn't live in the house at that time. But again, through this death records, I found that he did actually live there until he died in 1901, at which point the house sat vacant. In 1902, the land was bought by a John A. Sprunger and his wife, Katharina. John, who was also known as John, Johan, or Johan, I'm not sure, J.A. or Hamy Hands. What the fuck? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. But these guys are sketchy as balls. That's funny how you said his his name is John, but some people call him John. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm going to do that from now on. Hi, I'm Adam, but you can call me Adam. <laughs> Genius. And then I'll just say, Adam... Can I call you Adam? (laughs) So one of the reasons why they were sketchy as balls is for one, in the first article I read, they both had the same surname, Sprunger, Mm. from before marriage. So it's like said that, oh, well, we don't know why that happened or whatever. Like they're from the same place in Sweden. So maybe it's common. I think it was Sweden. And a former employee of them of theirs and a former employee of theirs referred to them as brother and sister Sprunger Mm. in like a journal. Mm -hmm. This might just be in a religious sense. Mm. I thought Mm -hmm. until I found out that they were actually first cousins. And they were married. Yep. Gross. And they were also super religious. I thought you were going to say super in love. I'm like, oh, gross. I mean, maybe they were. I don't know. So they bought this land so as they could build the Light of Hope Orphanage (laughs) 2.0, right? You all didn't see that, but I did did the signs with my fingers. The little man fingers. Not a little. 
Well, I don't little say a little bit. Man, <laughs> with his man fingers. <laughs> Big, strong man hands. Uh, they had just left Bernie, Indiana, after their other orphanage, The Light of Hope, had mysteriously burned down. What the which, fuck? Yeah, which killed three young orphan girls. This is a fact this happened. Yeah. Apparently, John had lost two other businesses to fires also. Uh-huh. One of which was a hospital. Mm. When this hospital burned down, mm. it was full of patients. Mm. And even one of the staff refused to leave the patient's side. They were like, no, we are here to care for them until the very end. Interesting. So chose to die, like literally go down with the ship. That's some fucking hardcore shit. Unreal. Like, And this is just what I picked up, like skimming through this family's history. So something was not right. And mm-hmm. I think like... He was a constant, like, he actually kind of reminded me of, like, an L. Ron Hubbard type. Mm, um, fuck that guy. Yeah, oh, yeah, fuck that guy. That's the Scientology guy, just in case you didn't know. And it said, like, he would literally start a business, go full-fledged in with it. If he lost everything, fuck it. Declare bankruptcy, start again, a new venture. Mm, so a lot of these like were success. Yeah, a little bit. So a lot of these were like really successful businesses and it said that he basically built a lot of the town of Bernie, Indiana. Mm. Maybe it's just Burn. Uh and the church that still stands there to this day was started by him and Katharina. Huh. Yeah, about a hundred years ago or like the late eighteen nineties or something. Um and there's a lot of people that just, you know, kept singing their praises because they had done so much. Mm-hmm. But in my head, I'm looking at these failures going to go on. Like, they were catastrophic. Like, people yeah. died. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I just wanted to throw that in there. Okay. They had five children, four who died very young. Like, I think a couple of them might have been, like, stillborn, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. They had a really hard time conceiving anyway. The eldest child was six when she died. Her name was Hilagonda. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I, again, they're from, I think, Sweden. I, I hope I'm not wrong. Okay. Um, I don't know how she died, but I know that it, like, totally fucked them up. Like, they were heartbroken. Yeah. She died in 1887, and they went off on, like, you know, went back home, went to visit a relative in, like, in the southern states who was a pastor. Like, they really found God mm-hmm. at this time, devoted their fucking lives to God. But they were so attached to this girl that when they bought the property in Vermilion, the next year, once the, everything was set up, they actually had her body exhumed and reburied at the property. What the fuck? And then again, in 1916, they had her exhumed and brought back to the family plot. What the in fuck? Bernie. Yeah. So this girl was dead for what? 16 years? And still did a lot of traveling. <laughs> yeah. That's crazy. More traveling than we've done in the last year. That's crazy. But uh, like to me, this I mean that's twisted. that something is not right there. You know no, what I mean? yeah, absolutely. Oh yeah, even though the mansion itself, like Swift's mansion, was only empty for a year when they bought it, probably not even. They never used it. They just let it be wither away, basically. Where the fuck did they sleep? They they wanted to build their own commune. Oh, oh. Self-sustaining religious commune with this orphanage right okay uh don't like that word 
Me neither. <laughs> so, like I said, they were extremely religious. John was a reverend, um, and they wanted to build this, or sorry, religious community. All right. To me, that's a commune. Anyway, <laughs> yeah. They built four buildings, and they had their own chapel in the boys' schoolhouse. That mm-hmm. you know where they would do all their shit. At one point, they had up to 120 children. Everywhere I read about them, they would refer to the children as inmates. What? I don't know why this happened. I don't know whether they're trying to paint like a really bad picture of the orphanage. Oh, the sources. The sources, yeah. I thought like them themselves. No, no, no. no, They're not fooling anyone now. They're like infallible in their own eyes. Interesting. The boys lived in the Hughes farm and the girls lived at the Howard farm. So it's all in the one property. It was just mm-hmm. a fucking huge property. They had their own printing press where they would print their own school books. Um, J.A. would print his own like manuscripts and like religious books and mm-hmm. stuff like that. They had plenty of runaways. Like a lot of these kids um, would escape. And they like it was a perilous journey because to get away from Vermilion itself, they had to cross a river. But mm. I think that was like the way, the only way you could get out without getting caught by someone, basically. Mm. And the ones that did get away told of like horrific stories of abuse, neglect, slave labor. Um, for example, like they had cows on the farm, but the kids were never like they would get butter like once every couple of weeks, maybe. They would and, butter? Like, yeah, like from the cows. like Oh, get butter. Butter, yeah. Butter. From the cows. Um, once a week? No, like once every couple of weeks. Mate, like if they were lucky kind of thing. That's weird. Yeah. And the only meat that they ever got were like the cows who died from sickness. Ew. Another thing uh, they were said to eat were hogs heads and calves lungs. Now, what? yeah, like that sounds horrific in particular. But like I know that pigs and sheep's head were a common thing to eat even like not that long ago, you know what Give I mean? Me so a cheeseburger. <laughs> but I don't know how like horrific that was. Like calves lungs today could be a delicacy. I genuinely don't fucking know. Fucking lungs, dude. Well, I don't know. Like That's we gnarly. eat cow cheeks every fucking weekend. You know what I mean? Oh yeah. But cow cheeks are good. Yeah. That's barbacoa. That's what that is. <laughs> you could be eating some tongue. I thought it was like or maybe it might be like the the wobble, the under the the double chin of the cow. Oh, I don't know. Either way, like, so... One um, of those things, that's what yeah. it was. Um, Delicious. But, <laughs> but they also said that they, they were sometimes made to just go hungry. Um, the corn was boiled in the same pot that they used to boil soiled underwear. Ew. And the it's buildings... Flavoring. Yeah. And the buildings were infested with rats and other, and other vermin. The boys complained of nibbling... The boys complained of things nibbling their toes at night. Yeah, because rats are assholes. Yeah, rats are assholes. Put that on a shirt. <laughs> uh, there was a, there was one bathtub for the boys, and they were allowed to bathe every two weeks, <gasps> but they all had to share the same water. Oh, my God. They might as well be rolling around in mud. Yeah. So Sprunger and the other employees... Uh, beat the kids with a strap until they were raw and blistered and they would also rent the kids out to other local farms as like just a source of cheap labor apparently illnesses and disease were treated only by prayer and it said that whatever education they received was not up to standards 
even in the 1900s, it was not up to standards. That's so, saying something. Yeah. Another thing I will say, like the whole illnesses and disease being treated with prayer, only treated with prayer. It sounds like Scientology. Yeah, right. Like or other cult. Yeah. Type fucking things, you know. Things were so bad that in 1909, an investigation was carried out. Like authorities came in and they were like, look, we're here to check out what's going on. That's sp- saying something, too. Yeah. And so the Sprungers admitted to a lot of the accusations. But there were no regulations back there, so nothing was actually fucking done about it. Then what was the fucking point of going out there? Exactly, right? I think they were just hoping, like, oh, we'll put the pressure on or something, you know? We got to keep the locals fucking pressure on our... my so, ass. I don't know. Anyway, um, <laughs> but they certainly didn't close down then. Right. John died in 1911. Good. And, he, <laughs> <laughs> and what I found on com. Because him and Katharina both have their obituaries on there. Although, like, any religious-run institution, the official statements are nothing but glowing. You know, mm, these people course. did so much to help yeah. communities. Yeah, lit up a room when they walked in. Yeah, all that bullshit. The main stories of, like, abuse and neglect seem to come from two dudes who spent time in the orphanage as kids and later wrote about it. Mm. One source just stated that many at the time were too afraid to speak out. But in his obituary, I found this one quote from someone who was singing his praises and he had been very influential towards. I don't know whether he was had been in, uh, in the orphanage himself as a kid. I just know that J.A. Sprunger helped this guy get a start in life and really mm-hmm. inspired him. But even him, even he said, quote, we know there have been differences in the past. While Reverend Sprunger's motives have never been questioned, his methods often gave cause for criticism. Mm. So the fact that even this guy said, yeah. you know, leads me to think that things were horrible in right. this fucking Makes place. Sense, yeah. Anyway, after he died, Katharina ran the place for a few years until it pretty much ran out of money, I think. And she sold it to another church and the remaining children were just kind of dispersed among local foster families or sent back to relatives and guardians. Oh, that's fucking convenient. Yeah. Hopefully they all had happy endings. Again, the land sat empty and terrifying. A derelict, spooky, haunted house for teenagers to go fuck around and scare each other silly. It was eventually burned down on December 8th, 1923, and the newspaper headline read, Haunted House Destroyed by Fire. Even back then, the paper printed a completely fabricated background story uh, for the house itself, for like Swift's mansion, because Swift's mansion could be seen from the road. Mm. So it was basically as soon as that became abandoned, local kids started going, oh, don't go up there. That's the haunted <laughs> house. And yeah, slowly the story then like there was the orphanage was behind it, but you couldn't necessarily get to it as easily or anything. So kids would go to this old house. And like dare each other to go up, knock on the door or go inside, see what it's all about. But this name, Gore Orphanage, Mm -hmm. where did that come from, do you say? Yeah. Where did that name come from, Adam? Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the name of the street. If I can call you Adam. Yeah, you can call me Adam. (laughs) Uh, But the name of the street where this house actually stood was called Gore Road. Mm. 
Gore, after some, quote, surveyor's error in the form of a thin strip of land that resembles the gore of a dress. So literally, like, going back to zoning this mm-hmm. area in, like, 1812 or some shit like that, they made a, a slight mistake where this was technically in the other county. So it was, like, the border road. Mm. So it got the name Gore Road after some surveying thing to do with, like, maps and zoning. What's a gore of a dress? Basically, like, this part of it, like, you know, here. Like, because I Google it as well. It's a... I don't know. Google it yourself. I, I can't describe it. Thanks. <laughs> but yeah, basically, it's just like the shape. Like, okay. Yeah. Really boring. Right. Yeah. And then <laughs> the orphanage came from the orphanage that was just behind the mansion on the land mm-hmm. on Gore Road. Mm-hmm. So it eventually became Gore Orphanage Road. Okay. So that sounds hardcore. Right? Yeah, like, no shit. Gore Orphanage Road. Yeah, I remember out when I was in college, I the I had a classmate whose last name was Slaughter and he was he he um was in the military, so and he was a sergeant. So Sergeant lit- Slaughter. Yes. So literally he was Sergeant Slaughter. And I was like, to be under him, like that has to have been terrifying. Yeah, you can go join Sergeant Slaughter in the bay. And the funny thing is, he was one of the nicest guys. <laughs> so sweet, super polite. <laughs> well, anyway, so that's how the the road got its name. But where did the story of the fire come from? Mm. In my opinion, that fire from the orphanage that fucking uh, the Sprunger Zone beforehand was like enough to mm-hmm. be like okay that's weird but bearing in mind back then like if you wanted to up sticks and leave go to a different town you just started over again you didn't have to tell anybody about that stuff mm. so the locals might not have even known about that but about 40 miles away from vermilion in the town of Collinwood, an elementary school caught fire and actually 176 kids died horribly Damn. like this is a fact this happened <laughs> I believe you. And um, no, but I mean, like, aside from the legend, you know what I mean? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. But again, all these people, the ones who did make it out and the locals who came to try and help were just kind of forced to stand there and wait and let it take its toll. And even like the handful of kids that did survive the initial fire died a few days later of their burns and stuff. The town also turned on the janitor. They said that he set them up because they did get trapped on the top stairs or something like that. Mm -hmm. But the janitor actually lost four of his own kids in the fire. Yeah. So I I didn't, I tried to not go too deep into that, but it was super sad story. Yeah. But. It sounds like they just wanted someone to blame. Oh yeah. Big time. Like he was basically Freddy Krueger. Yeah. Yeah. You know? And so it's thought that. That story basically just intertwined with the fact that they had this like metal as fuck scary house on Gore Orphanage Road. Yeah. And that's where the story came from. Mm. But that being said, the actual story of the land, mm-hmm. in my opinion, is more than enough to make a few ghosts. Like the fact that they exhumed that little girl's body, yeah. reburied her, yeah. re-exhumed her, sent mm-hmm. her back. All the kids that were being abused there over the years, mm-hmm. the four grandkids that died with diphtheria. Yeah. And um, also, 
J.A. himself, or Mr. Sprung or Reverend Sprung or whatever you want to call him, he died in the orphanage. Mm. And it's said that his ghost is still there to this day. Tormenting all the other kids. Maybe. And the thing is, most people like who hear the story of Gore Orphanage and just take that as Bible, they go and they can still see to this day where Swift's mansion once stood. Mm -hmm. And it's quite easy to find that. They don't realize that just behind there was this other, possibly still there, I don't honestly know. So if anything, the whole land is fucking tainted with this, Taint. these horrible stories. Yeah. Thanks. <laughs> um, so anyway, the place is spooky and it's said that there's a lot of residual energy there to this day. There's reports of ghostly apparitions, balls of light. Again, like our Patreon story that we covered. Mm, balls and forest. Balls and taint all in one story. That's crazy. Um, That's... Screams of children can be heard. Visions of fire. I don't really know what that entails. And um, another kind of local legend that goes along with it is that if you park your car too close to where the house once stood, mm -hmm. you'll come back to find your car covered in little tiny handprints. Oh, but we already know about that. We do. Yeah, remember? Um, that's like a, like a, one of those science thingies where, because like your car, you're always touching your car, so. So why you? It's just the, the oil stays there. So you think it's just the dust from the unused road? Mm -hmm. Covers the car. Okay, well, I'll just go fuck myself then. But <laughs> people are said though to still have like spooky experiences and that there to this day another um like paranormal crew mm. have reckoned that they've debunked the screams that people hear uh -huh. as being from like some nearby deer uh no like bridge and if a truck hits that bridge with the wind in a certain direction it seems to sound like the sound of kids sounds like screaming. a stretch to me, yeah, it does. Like, I'm still willing to go to this place at night and see what we can fucking find out, you know? Ah, good for you. We. Who the fuck is this we? <laughs> anyway, so that's the story of the Gore Orphanage. Sick. Yeah, and I thought it was a delightful amount of debunking, mm. a lovely amount of legend, mm -hmm. and some cold, hard facts. Yes. That still lend to a fucking very spooky story. Yeah. My uh, my sources this week were ghostsofohio.org, skepticalinquire.org, vermilionohio.com, and this one is weird, sites.google.com forward slash site forward slash gore orphanage myths forward slash two dash nicholas dash wilbur <laughs> what the fuck yeah i think it's like a personal blog okay. but it actually gave me helped me find the findagrave.com okay so it's definitely worth checking out if you're interested and i think that's that for this episode of weekly creep we did it yay, yay. another one another one um yeah so guys like i said or like we've been saying every week for fucking six six months august yeah actually yeah we're on the seven month anyway we we now have a patreon set up 
we're in the process of getting that full of Stuffs. cool extra content. Yeah, we might have to leak some of it to the public just so it's like you can get a taster and see what you like. Just like your drug dealer says, first taste is free. Yeah. Um, so in the Patreon, we have bonus mini episodes, um, bonus listener stories or pork chops titillating tales of true terror. Yeah, that she handpicks herself yeah, pork and has herself. us read. Another thing is videos. We're going to start trying to make a lot more video content. So right now, there's two reaction videos of us watching scary videos and going, oh shit, that's scary. And we did some Mad Libs. We're going to put up some like just dumb, fun, nonsensical content for you all. For entertainment, yeah. Yeah, and if... We keep saying this, but if you guys have any suggestions, let us know. We will do it. Yeah. And yeah, other than that, you can check out our stuff on Redbubble. I want to say thank you to the Cannabis Contessa. Make sure to check out her Instagram. She does really nice looking food. Mm -hmm. She cooks with cannabis, uh, hence the name. Yeah. I want to give a thanks to Jennifer and Caitlin because they've been really helpful with the Facebook group and the whole movie thing. Yeah. They've been a really they've been a really big help. Big time. We had that, uh, yeah. our second edition of the Weekly Creep Movie Club this week. Which was so sick. Oh yeah. Big time. Yeah. Um and we will be doing that again in two weeks' time if y'all wanna um join us. Join us for that. We're gonna be watching something. Join else. our commune. Yeah, join our commune. And I think that's it. Yep. Uh follow us on Instagram, Twitter facebook what else if you're listening to us on apple podcasts please feel free to rate and review yeah uh and think about us yeah think about us all right i think that's it (laughs) (laughs) all right guys thank you very much for listening once again and we'll see you next week we will okay bye bye Such a fucking rat. He's a rat, yeah. What the fuck? I fucking hate this guy. (laughs) (laughs) Dirty bastard indeed.